I'm going to read a few verses um, in a minute from Exodus 33. We're not going to read the whole of 33, 34. I'm going to just pull out a few bits as we go. But just to remind us where we were last week, we had the golden calf and we saw really the seriousness of sin. Remember um, just the, the picture that we had of this terrible looking piece of gold, this lump of gold and all of Israel dancing around it and doing all sorts of terrible things. And we saw really that the sin, rebellion to God, um, choosing our way instead of God's way, which is given his law, isn't just making bad choices. We saw really the depth and the gravity of sin. Ultimately, as God sees it, it's spiritual adultery. That's what it is. Um, it is turning our back on our faithful creator. Um, and our God, our creator, the Bible talks about him as a faithful husband. And he is one like any good husband would. He is one who makes a home for his people. He creates safety in that home. He creates a home where we can rest. He creates a home that is full of his love and his kindness. Like that is the kind of God that we have, like, like a perfect husband. And so turning our back on God, engaging in sin, embracing sin, it's not just foolish. Like remember the stupidity of Aaron last week, throwing all the gold into the fire and it coming out. Like, it's not just foolish, it's unfaithful. That's what sin is. When we turn our back on our faithful God, it is unfaithfulness. The Bible is clear, God cannot not judge us for it. We saw at the end of chapter 32, the initial consequences for Israel's sin. But as we get into chapter 33, we see the, the real consequence of sin. The greatest consequence of sin. Let's pick it up in chapter 33. Verse 1, I'm just going to read the first few verses for us. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Let me just pray again before we move on. Father, we thank you for your word. Even passages like this, where we see the consequence of our sin, we thank you for it because we know that hope is coming. And Father, as we work through these verses this afternoon, we pray that you would change us, you would transform us. That is the, the big truth that we see buried within these two chapters is that you are a God who wants to change us. You want us to be changed and transformed into the image of your son. So we, we ask that you would come and do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Conform us into his image. And Jesus, we thank you that these are your words. And so they are living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that you will come and have your way and do what you will do for your glory. Amen. Amen. Did you see what it was? There are initial consequences in chapter 32 for our sin. But did you see what the real consequence of sin is in verse 3 of chapter 33? God says to Moses, you can go. Remember, he's given them the promise of a land, this land that he describes as flowing with milk and honey. He's going to bring them to a place of, of rest and peace. He's going to drive out the enemies. And God says, you can go. Go. 
but I'm not going with you. Just a few chapters before, God had been given Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. Remember this beautiful show hope of what the new heavens, the new earth would be like. This place where, where God would dwell in the midst of his people. A place where, where God's people could engage with him through the ministry of the priests. And now because of their sin, God is saying, the tabernacle, that building project, it's over. Their sin has closed the door on the presence of God. God has said, sure, you can go. You can go into the promised land. You can enter into Canaan, but my presence will not come with you. And he describes it a little bit like flying too close to the sun. He says, if I go with you, I'll consume you up. Like if you get too close to the sun, you will burn up. And God is saying the same because you are sinful and you are cherishing sin. For you to be in my presence would be deadly. And so you can go and you can take hold of the promise. You can take hold of the blessing, but I'm not going to go with you. And folks, when you hear it like that, that you can have the blessing of God, but without God. Like that actually rings true for, for our attitude towards God so often. To have the blessings of God, to have the good things from God, but not to have God. To see all of the good things that he promises in his word and to, and to receive them and to take them. But to push God to one side and say, I'm all right with you. I'll just, I'll just have your stuff. Like, actually, that is the position of our heart so often. So often we say to the God, bless me. Forgive me. Save me from hell. Give me a husband. Give me a wife. Give me more of the blessings. But God, I'm not actually too fussed about you. Give me your stuff. But I can leave you for now. And even if you're not a Christian, that's how you view God. You don't want a relationship with God, but you do want his blessings. And even if you don't attribute these things to God, you want peace, you want comfort, you want approval. They are all actually things that only God can give you. And they are good things to crave. They are good desires, but, but really you want God's stuff without wanting God. And as Christians, I wonder how many times, even this week, have we prayed, God, will you do more of this? Or God, will you give me more of this? Or God, will you just, I'm praying for this thing in my life, will you, will you just bring it to me? Like I've prayed that prayer a lot and they are good prayers to pray. It's not wrong to ask God for his help and for his blessings. But as I'm preparing this, I'm challenging myself. I'm thinking, how many times have I prayed, God, just give me more of you? God, just help me to enjoy your presence. The stuff's important, but I'm all right for the stuff. I just want you. How many times have we prayed that, folks? And actually, when we think about approaching God in that way, of actually just wanting his stuff and not really wanting him, wanting him, actually, that should really hit our heart hard. Because we've sung this afternoon, we've sung and confessed who we believe God to be. That we believe that he is the king of all. We believe that there is no one better than him. We believe that he has done what he has done for us. And then to think that we would approach God in a way where we just want his blessings instead of him, like that should really hit our hearts hard, folks. Because when we're talking about God, we're not talking about 
Like, I don't know, maybe you can get away with that kind of attitude with your boss. Like, you don't really want a relationship with your boss. You just want a pay rise or... That's not even on the cards, is it? But you just, I don't know, you just want an easy week and work, whatever it is. But you don't really want a relationship with him. Maybe you can get away with that. Maybe you can get away with it with your friends. Like, you just want their company or... I don't know, their food or their coffee, whatever it is, but you don't really want to spend time with them. Maybe you can get away with it if you've got a spouse. Like, like you, you know, you want their, their, their presence and their comfort and their affirmation, but actually we don't really want them with us. But to approach God like that, and actually the Bible does talk of God in those ways as someone who, who governs over us, as someone who is like a spouse, as someone who is a friend. But God is all of those things in their perfection. He is a perfect ruler. He is a perfect husband. He is a perfect friend. He's those things on hyperdrive. Like we might get away with treating our bosses, our friends, our spouses like that because actually we see the best of them and the worst of them. But we have never seen the worst of God because there is no worst of God. Like he is always continually good. And so to approach him in a way where we just want his stuff, we just want his blessings, that should hit our heart's heart. All he does for his people is pour out blessing upon blessing. Like his love is infinitely pouring out towards us. His grace is infinitely pouring out towards us. His delight is infinitely pouring out towards us. And yet we so easily come with open hands and say, just give me your stuff. And we push him away. I want to push this just a little bit more. I appreciate we're only on to verse three. Don't worry. We're not going to unpack every verse, but this is important. Like just think about, like the cross isn't the place where we see all of God, but it is a great place to start when we want to understand who God is. God in the person of Jesus, who is completely innocent, willingly leaves the glory of heaven to live amongst sinners. And just think, for 30 years, Jesus is watching humanity. And with everything that humanity does in front of him, every day, day after day, they prove themselves to be wholly undeserving of anything good from God. That's all Jesus sees for 30 years. And yet in the greatest outpouring of mercy the universe has ever seen, he goes and dies for those people. He willingly suffers the violence of the cross from worthy sinners. He becomes our sin for us and is punished for our sins in our place. On the cross, he is spat on. On the cross, he is mocked for us. On the cross, he is humiliated for us. On the cross, he is tortured for us. On the cross, he bleeds for us. On the cross, his limbs are ripped apart for us. On the cross, he is cursed by God for us. On the cross, he experiences hell for us. And yet we still so often have the audacity to look Jesus in the eye and say, I'll just have your stuff, thanks. Just give me your blessings. I don't need you right now. So often we assume the position of, you know, the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells that parable. I wonder if Jesus telling that, like, he knows, he knows his place in the story. Like, anyway, that's a total aside. Anyway, the prodigal son, this guy comes to his father, wishes that he is dead because he just wants the stuff. Like, that's how you read it, right? So in the first century, if you ask for inheritance from your father... You could only get that when your father is dead. So he comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. 
effectively, I wish that you were dead. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. And so the father gives him, gives him his inheritance. And then off he goes to another land and he squanders his wealth on stupid stuff, on foolish stuff. And then he finds himself in a pigsty amongst the mess and the excrement of the pigs. And Jesus says, he came to his senses. His eyes are opened to the reality that the blessings of his father are nothing without the presence of his father. And that is exactly the same for us when it comes to God. The blessings of God, folks, are nothing without the presence of God. See, we actually get an unexpected turn in the story with Israel here. Because Israel comes to the same conclusion. Like we've seen, we saw last week, like they are off the heads, aren't they? Like they take sin and they like take it to another level. But a penny drops here in verse four. Moses comes and he tells them, okay, God's going to let us go. He's going to let us go to the promised land, but he's not coming with us. And look at how they respond in verse four. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. So here they are, probably still hot and sweaty from their parties, but yet they come to their senses. And in verse 7 to 11, they look back and they mourn as they remember all the ways in which God's presence has been amongst them. All of the the beauty of God's presence being amongst them as God met with Moses and they realise what they're about to lose. Like God is offering the blessings, but without him. And they come to their senses and their eyes are open that the blessings of God are nothing without the presence of God. And Moses knows it. And so in verse 12 to 16, he pleads with God to relent. Let me just read these verses too. As Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, so he's saying to Moses, I'll go with you, Moses, but I'm not going to go with everyone else. Moses says, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, okay, I, I, I understand that you're kind of giving us the blessings. I even understand that you might be with me, but that's not enough. I want you to come with all of us. I want you to fulfill your promise to be amongst your people. Don't hold yourself back. And we're going to come back to these verses right at the end later on. But just for now, folks, just see how Moses persists in prayer for the presence of God with his people. Moses knows that it's God's presence that makes us his people. And so he persists and pleads with God. And then incredibly, in verse 17, Moses, God sorry, gives Moses what he asks for. Moses says, we're not going to go without you. And so God says, okay. He says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God relents. And it isn't like God has kind of been doing one thing, and then Moses influences him, and God changes his mind. God is always determined to do it that way, but he sovereignly chooses to do it through Moses' prayer, through Moses' plea. 
So Moses, Israel, so we can see how desperately we need God. The blessings of God are nothing without the presence of God, folks. And here's the reason why. Because transformation comes in the presence of God. So in verse 17, Moses gets, gets what he asks for. He asks God to go with them to the promised land. And God says, yeah, okay. Like, for me, that's a win. If I'm Moses, I'm like, wow, that was a good day of work. Like, I'd close my briefcase and I would go away. But not Moses. Like, we've already learned he's a bit different, right? He pushes again. God promises to be with his people when they get to the promised land. But that isn't enough for Moses. God says, yeah, I'll be there with you. I'll be with you in the promised land, but that isn't enough for Moses. So in verse 17, God says, okay, uh, the thing that you've spoken, I'll do if you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And then Moses says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Moses wants to see God now. He wants the presence of God now. He doesn't want to wait for a future time. He wants to see it and experience it now. He knows that as God is with his people in the promised land, change is coming, transformation is coming. But he isn't satisfied with waiting for it then. He wants it now because he knows that transformation, true transformation, comes in the presence of God. Folks, we will not grow into the people that God has created us to be unless we are immersed in the presence of God. Unless we are immersed saturated in the presence of God. We will not be the people that God has called us to be and grow into the people that God has called us to be. And interestingly, that is so often the reason that we don't want to immerse ourselves in the presence of God because we know he's going to change us. If transformation comes in being immersed in the presence of God, then so often we look at our lives and we think, Do you know what, I'll leave that for now. <laughs> I love my life how it is right now. I'll change where I want to change. And so we stay away from God. And we push back the presence of God. And as we do that, folks, we fool ourselves into thinking that we know what's best for us. That God doesn't know us as well as we know us. That the transformation that God wants to do in our lives won't be good for us. And that's simply not true. I just want to take a breather for a second and just let this sit for us. Where we know, folks, where we feel that God is pressing on an area of our life, pursuing transformation, pursuing change, and I don't know what that is. That could be God is kind of pushing on an area of sin in your life and he wants you to let it go. He wants you to change. He wants you to let that, that area of sin go. It could be that he's just pushing you and nudging you towards a certain type of sacrifice. And you feel it, but you're resisting it. God wants to change you and kind of bring about that sacrifice. It might be that there's an area of risk in front of you that you're just, you know God's kind of pulling you and you're just resisting it. You're pushing it to one side. I don't know what it is, but where you feel that God is pressing on that area of your life, pursuing transformation where we feel that God is encouraging change in our lives and we are resisting, can I, just, can I just help us see why actually we don't want to resist that? Because resisting the transformation of God is resisting the revealing of true beauty in our lives. See, the greatest transformation that God is interested in in each of our lives is making us less like our broken selves 
and more like his beautiful son. So when we push back that change and we say, do you know what? God, I'm all right at the moment. Try again later. When we push back the transformation that God wants to do in our lives, we're pushing back a beautiful work that he wants to do. Um, if you've got time when you get home, read 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 4. That's a bit of a commentary on, on Exodus um, 33 and 34. Paul is so helpful. He really unpacks a little bit of what's going on here. And we haven't got... Oh man, there are so many questions, by the way, in these two chapters. And I'm like, oh, we just haven't got time. Read uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. That's really helpful. But let me just tell you uh, what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3. He's reflecting on this specific part of the Exodus story, uh, particularly when we get into Exodus 34. And he says, this side of the cross, there you go, thanks, Karis. This side of the cross, God's people, we all, he says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. So here's what Paul is saying. This side of the cross, we're able to see the beauty of God. And and God is changing us. You see that from one degree of glory to the next. He's transforming us. And what is he transforming us into? Kind of the the best Ryan, the best kind of model that Ryan could be. The best model of Adam that that he could be. Is that what he's doing? Is that what Paul said? I'm going to transform you into, into the best version of you. No, what does he say? You're being transformed into the same image. Excellent. And who is the image that we are being transformed into? Christ. Jesus. That is the work that God wants to do in us. That is the transformation. That He's not just making us better people, guys. He is making us like Jesus. And if there is one perfect picture of humanity in the universe, it's him. Like, I desperately want that change in my life. I desperately want that change in your lives. So can I plead with you, where you feel that the Lord is pursuing change and transformation in your life, don't push it away. He's wanting to do a beautiful work, so open the door and let him do it. Moses boldly asks to see the glory of God. He knows that transformation comes in the presence of God. So he asks that bold question. Show me your glory. And incredibly, God says, yeah, okay. Verse 19, let's pick it up there. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Moses can't see God directly and live. So God puts him in this kind of cut out, a carving in the rock. So he can just see the afterglow of his glory. Now, a lot of us will be familiar with, with this part of the Exodus story and this picture. This is one of Andy's favourite, isn't it? Like just this glowing picture of, of Moses as he spent time with God. And it is a wonderful picture. But, but I want us to see what is actually going on here. What is it that, that Moses catches a glimpse, glimpse of? Like, what is it that the, the kind of uh, moves past him and he sees the afterglow of it? Like, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking there's something like physically moving in front of him. But actually, God really wants us to see that it's less about, it's less about kind of something physical that is going on. And it's more about what Moses hears. 
In verse 19, God says, this is what's going to pass before you. The proclamation of my name. It's God's name that goes before Moses. And we hear what God's name is. The Lord, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses wants to see God and rather than a description of what God looks like, the way that he sees God, the way that he sees the glory of God is through the proclamation of who God is and what he does. And the Lord and gracious and merciful. And actually, if you flip over to chapter 34, you'll see this pattern continues. Moses goes into the tabernacle. It says that he meets with God and he comes out and his face is literally glowing because he's experienced the presence of God. But if you look carefully all the way down to to verse 29, you'll see why Moses' face is glowing. Let me read it out to us. He comes down from from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony. Um, He comes down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And then it goes on in the rest of that portion there to talk about when he goes in and out of the tabernacle. And he comes out and his face is shining. Moses' face is shining not because he sees God face to face. His face is shining because he's been talking with God. You see that in verse 9? He'd been talking with God and then... Moses repeats it three more times. His face was shining, shining so powerfully that he had to put a veil over it because people were so afraid. He's been so transformed, the kind of brightness of of him being in the presence of God is so powerful that he has to veil his face and he has to veil his face because he has been talking to God. Not because he's seen someone necessarily face to face. It is God's word that transformed him so powerfully. It is God's word that made him look so different. And God works in exactly the same way today, folks. But now because of the coming of Jesus, the glory of God doesn't just shine on one person. It shines on all of his people. Listen to this from John chapter 1, verse 14. Apostle John is looking back and if we think again about the word being the thing that transforms Moses, makes his face shine, we see how that word (laughs) develops as we have the incarnation of Jesus. John says this, and the word, the way that God had always communicated and kind of revealed himself, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It has always been through the word of God that his glory has been revealed and his people are transformed. So if we're wondering and kind of asking and craving for the glory of God, what we're really asking is for, is for the word of God to do a work in our lives to transform us to be more like Jesus. And so let's get practical. What does that mean for us? How does God through this passage want us to respond? Well, firstly, We should want to desire transformation in the presence of our God for ourselves. Desire transformation in the presence of God for ourselves. Folks, we see the glory of God revealed through his son in his word. So listen to him. Immerse yourself in the glory of God as you engage with him in his word. What you look at defines who you are. What consumes your attention will shape your attitude and priorities. If you just spend the whole day 
looking at filth on your screen, that will define who you are. Look at Aaron from the chapter before. He sees the calf and he organised an orgy. Like, what you look at defines who you are. Moses always sees the glory of God and that radiates from him. The people know, the people see that he is different. It transforms him. We become what we are created to be by looking at God's glory. And so, guys, as you engage with God's word, as you sing truth through God's word, as you talk to God in prayer, look to see the glory of Christ in that. Don't just think that these are words on the page. Look for Jesus. Enjoy. You know, you probably know this. The people in our lives who look the most like Jesus are always the people who have spent the longest with Jesus, aren't they? I can talk about my friend Brenda. A lot of she died a couple of years ago. She was 92. And she had hair like um, wire wool. She had furrows in her face that were like an inch deep. She looked old and battered. There is no one on this earth who looked more like Jesus than Brenda. Because she'd lived her life with the glory of God shining on her face and shining on her heart. And she was so transformed, having spent so much time with her Savior. But there was no one that I've met who was more like Jesus than Brenda. Folks, we should desire transformation in the presence of God, which we find in his word, which we find in hearing his voice in prayer and amongst God's people. We should desire that. We should desire it for ourselves and we should desire it for others. We're going to share this meal in a few moments. But before we do, there's an immediate response that we can make to this passage. If you go back to chapter 33... Remember, Jesus, Jesus, Moses, sorry, isn't satisfied with the blessings of God. He wants the presence of God. And he isn't satisfied with the presence of God just for himself. He wants it for all of God's people. His heart longs for others to experience the presence of God. And so remember, he pleads with God. He comes and he petitions God. He understands that, that there is a blindness to people who, who haven't experienced it. And so he comes and pleads that God's presence would be there for all of God's people. And actually what you see in chapter 33 is a wonderful model for how we can pray for those who are lost. It's all going off this afternoon, isn't it? A wonderful model for missional prayer. So look at verse 13 of chapter 33. First we see that, that Moses calls on the promises of God. He says, if I found favour in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. God has promised that these are going to be his people. Remember, he said that a few times, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Moses reminds God of his promises. That is a great way to start missional prayer. Just remembering the promises of God. Remember that God has promised to gather a people to himself. Then next in verse 16, we see that, that Moses brings the people before God. He's no longer praying for himself. He keeps on saying, I and your people. And so it's a good thing for us to bring specific people before God. And we don't know whether they're God's people or not, if they're not saved, but we pray that they are. And we come and we bring them by name and say, Lord, I'm praying for Sean, I'm praying for Michael. Would you save them? Would they be able to enjoy your presence like I enjoy your presence? Would you transform them into the image of your son like you're doing with me? And then in verse 16 again, you see that Moses reminds God of his purpose. 
He says, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. He's reminding God that, God, you've got a purpose here. You are gathering a people to yourself so that we will look different and so that we will draw other people in. He reminds God that his work isn't done. And listen, Jesus isn't, isn't returned yet. He's not here, so God has still got work to do. His purposes are not finished yet. There are still people, and we hope and we pray, people in this community that he's yet to bring in. There's a great model for prayer to call on the promises of God, to remember specific people before God, and to remind God of his purpose, that his work is not done. Father, bring these people in. Save them for your glory. So that's what we're going to do now. Before we share this meal, we're just going to take a few minutes and pray. Use that model as a, a model for missional prayer. There's people I'm sure that we all know who we're praying for, who we long to enjoy the presence of God like we can enjoy and will enjoy for all eternity. And so just in twos or threes where we are, can we do that just for a couple of minutes? Just bring to mind whatever promise of God that you know, whatever truth of God's word that you know. Use that in part of your prayer. Name some specific people that you're praying for. Remind God of his purpose, that his work isn't done and that he'd finish it, but actually bring in these people before he does. Let's just do that for a couple of minutes, folks. It's a great way just to respond straight away to his word. And then after a few minutes, I'll lead us through communion.